I invite you now to turn to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4 this morning. I was struck as I was singing with you how moving Christmas is. It moves us in one of two general ways. One is exultant joy and worship, and the other is heartfelt uh, grief and heartache as we think of loved ones during this time and this season, those who are hurting. Uh, The Lord came to bind up the brokenhearted, and he, as a humble servant, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's acquainted with the burdens that you bear and share this morning, and our hearts uh, go out to each other, don't they? Well, I'm hoping to find comfort in the text and that the comforting work of the Holy Spirit will work in your hearts and in your life this morning, and that if you do not yet know this risen Lord, my prayer is that the text will open you up, that the Spirit will summon you to himself, and you will know him as your King, as your Lord, as your High Priest, as your Deliverer, and as your friend. Let me pray as we um, get started this morning. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the text. I thank you that the text is not an academic text, but a living word. And I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds, would light up our thinking to see this as truth. And it is truth. It is your word that is truth. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that the gospel is here before us. And I pray, God, that we would embrace it as life this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've been tracking uh, in recent Galatians sermons, specifically from chapter 3, then you know that we have been covering a lot of biblical history. History that comes under the headers or units of three different people. Three different people representing three different phases of biblical history. First, Abraham, who was given the Abrahamic promise or covenant where God said, Through you or through your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 3. And then... Paul is speaking of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that was given through the law, given to Moses, the second figurehead of that covenant. And it was a covenant that was bilateral, an agreement between Israel and God that if Israel would keep the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and the commandments expanded in the Pentateuch, the first five books of our scripture, if the law would be kept, then... Israel would be blessed, and if it forsook the law for the world's idols and the flesh of the world, then Israel would be cursed. Paul was making the clear statement that the Galatians were no longer under the Mosaic law. They weren't under this curse, and that the Abrahamic covenant, the first covenant that was made by God, is their gospel promise. That new Christians, new believers are not under the old law. They're not under that bilateral pressure to be law keepers, specifically having to be circumcised to come into the church. That was not 
happening and that the law of Moses actually instead of annulling or making the Abrahamic covenant obsolete actually was the very law that was to drive people to place their faith faith in Christ. The Mosaic law or the law of Moses is what makes the Abrahamic covenant necessary. It's what makes it urgent. So Abraham's promise that Abrahamic covenant was actually fulfilled in not Moses but in Christ, and the new covenant has come in Christ. And that's what we've been singing about. Christ has come. Christ is the only one who can bring reconciliation between God and sinful man. This is the promise of the gospel. And in this sense, all of the families of the earth, all of the nations that have believers from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that believe in Jesus Christ, you included, as Anchorage Alaskans, If you believe and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are part of this gospel promise. And no amount of failures in your life can keep you from this promise. No amount of law-breaking can keep you from this promise. No amount of guilt pressure from forsaking God's laws can keep you from this promise because God has reconciled man in Christ. Christ who kept the law for you gives you his righteousness, gives you grace if you'll place your faith in him. Well, Paul's been establishing this basic theology, this basic biblical history, and now in Galatians 4, wants to apply it to personal experience. Personal experience. The Christian life is a life of Christian experience. If you do not have a Christian experience, then what you have is knowledge of Christ. Perhaps you know something of Jesus Christ, but you don't have true spiritual life yet because a Christian knows God and is known by God on a personal level. Christian experience has been reduced, as I watched on a panel discussion of different religious leaders. It's been reduced to something more factual in terms of Christ. He was a good man. You've heard this. Who was Jesus Christ? Well, I believe, I mean, this was the Islamic's perspective. I believe Jesus was a good man, a good teacher. I think he's mentioned in the Quran. Um, And, you know, he's a good example to us. Obviously, they don't know the full biblical picture of Jesus Christ, who says he's the only way to God, and he is God, very God himself. That's what he claims of himself. But if Christ is just reduced for you down to being a good teacher or a good example or a good mentor, then you don't yet really know Christ personally. And for you to come to that realization, listen, should not be alarming to you, It should not be something that I am revealing to you that discourages you. But instead, it should be the turning point of your life where you say, I must know Christ personally. I must know him because I need to be saved from knowing a savior who is Christ the Lord. Martin Luther, who I've quoted a lot because he wrote a great work on Galatians, said this, and this is very Christmas-y 
in terms of a quote. So listen, he gets and understands the authentic Christ and the humility of Christ. Christianity, he says, does not begin at the top as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. Therefore, whenever you are concerned to think and act about your salvation, you must put away all speculations about the majesty, all thoughts of works, traditions, and philosophy, indeed of the law of God itself. And listen, you must run directly to the manger and the mother's womb. Embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms and look at him born, being nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all of the heavens and having authority over all things. In this way, you can shake off all the terrors and errors as the sun dispels the clouds. The Christian experience in a word is this. You were without Christ and you are now with Christ. You were without God and now God is with you. You didn't know Christ, now you know Christ and are known by Christ. The Christian experience is boiled down as the great transition of your life from being a slave, listen, to being a son. From being a slave to your own sin to being God's very child who he loves. Well, I want to begin verses 1 through 3, unpacking that under the header, the experience as a slave. This is what Paul is speaking of here. Listen as I read. I mean, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and Managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Let's stop there. Paul here, remember, is reaching the ears of both the Jews who are Jewish Christians. First century church began with Jewish believers. So the church. Even outside of Jerusalem was filled with Jews who were becoming converts through the synagogues and through the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas. And so these Jewish believers were reading this, but this was a Gentile-dominated region that Paul was addressing in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, lower Asia, Asia Minor, and he's reaching the ears of Gentiles as well. So you can apply verses 1, 2, and 3 to a Jewish mindset and a Jewish experience and a Gentile's mindset and experience, but first to the Jew. What would that have looked like? Well, verses 1 and 2 speak to the Jew in this way. A Jew at age 12 would be bar mitzvahed. A Jewish boy was under the direct and absolute control of his dad or father. And at the bar mitzvah at age 12 on the first Sabbath weekend of a particular month, the boy's father would pray a prayer like this. He would say, Blessed be thou, O God, who hath taken from me the responsibility of this boy. Would that we could pray that, right? Our 12-year-old, I'm not responsible anymore. Sorry. And the boy would pray... Oh my God, and my Father, 
On this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes unto thee and declare my sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep thy commandments and undertake to bear the responsibility of my actions toward thee. So, a Jew would read this as one who had the experience of thinking of himself in terms of what he would inherit as an heir and being a child who's under guardians and managers until this transition point. Well, let let me read to you how a Gentile or someone who's Greco-Roman would read these verses or hear these verses. It's broadened in verse 3 to all listeners, but in ancient Greece, a boy was under his father's control until the age of 18. At that time, a festival called the Apateria would be held in which the boy was declared an ephabos, a type of cadet with special responsibilities to his clan or city-state, like joining the army. And for he would do this for a period of two years. During this coming-of-age ceremony, the boy's long hair, this is very military, would be cut off and offered to the god Apollo. That's no slight on any of you youngsters with long hair. At the Roman ceremony, boys would take their toys and similar ceremony for girls, they would take their dolls and offer them in sacrifice to their gods as a symbol of putting childhood behind them. This is what Paul spoke of when he spoke of Christian maturity in 1 Corinthians thirteen eleven, where he said, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Paul's illustration here is gaining the attention of a Jew and a Gentile's experience where they were children. The word there is infant. They were under the care of a mentor or a tutor. This is the same symbol of how the law had governed the Israelites, but more in terms of personal experience where it's being a child and you know that you're going to inherit things that your father owns and has you're going to have responsibilities but a father would put often a trusted slave to mentor a child and to keep them in um you know safekeeping during this time so that they would not blow their inheritance or they would not destroy their own life though they were an owner of everything their experience as a child was really that like a slave or a servant in the home It's this sort of, I'm not yet released. I don't yet have the keys to the car. I'm not yet moving out of the house. I want to be out of the house, but I'm not yet out of the house. I haven't gone away to college yet. I haven't gotten married yet. I haven't cut the cord yet. That's what Paul is likening the experience of being A Jew who's going, I know I'm part of the Abrahamic promise, but nothing's happened in my heart yet. Or a Gentile who's saying, I know that there's something more out there. I've gone through these ceremonial acts with lowercase g gods with Apollos and things like that, but it's not real to me yet. It's this pre-Christ experience and then the transition. Before I was under guardians, I was under managers until the date set by my father and the date here is the date of manhood which is likened to the date for salvation true saving faith then and today is when a son or daughter becomes self-sufficient but in terms of christ it's where you become completely his where you know him and he 
knows you. Look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, and Paul here is using we in a broader sense. He's saying for all Christians, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This verse is unique. For the Jew, they would have heard it this way. We were enslaved. There was an exodus in our history where we left the enslavement of Egypt and Pharaoh. Then there was the second exodus where we left Babylon and came back home and the temple was rebuilt. We were enslaved and then we were set free. For the Gentile, they would see these words, the elementary principles of the world, in a broader way, much like we would. Before Christ we were all enslaved to the lust of the flesh, the lust of life, the lust of this world, our boasting, our arrogance, our wickedness. The word elementary principles is a philosophical term used by the Greek philosopher later, Plato, who spoke of the elements of our world like earth, wind, and fire. Water, it was the idea of the rudimentary elements of life, like the laws of logic, things that we just know are realities here. Applied spiritually, it's the idea that, man, I'm a sinner. There are things that ensnare me. There are idols of the heart that entice me. That's the elements of this world. They find themselves in false religions all over the place. Colossians is where Paul uses this word again. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you still act like you're alive in the world and submit to these regulations? Like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as if they are used according to human precepts and teachings. They have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Listen, people in our world try to solve their problem with their flesh, with their insecurities, with their heartaches, with their guilt, with false religions or idols. Idols of the heart. I remember uh, a couple years ago, I got a phone call, and it came, I think, to our, my home phone, which I never use, right? What is that? A phone with a cord, you know? It was, a, you know, hands-free, but you get what I'm saying. Anyway, so I, I, uh, I answered the call, and it was someone who was an adult voice but was asking for one of my teenagers and one of my teenagers had done a survey that I later deduced as I'm saying, so why do you want to talk to this person and, and who are you? And finally, the person declared themselves to be a, I guess, missionary from the Christian scientists, science movement. So that's alarming to me, right? Thinking you want to get on the phone as a emissary messenger of Satan with my teenager, and I said, listen, I'm a Christian minister of the gospel, and if you call here again, I'm going to call the police. But you know why I said that? Well, one, because I was probably a young teenager dad, but on the other hand, I don't want people calling around for my kids. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. I'm going to take them seriously. 
This is enslavement. John Stott said these elements or spirits are weak and beggarly. They are weak because they have no strength to redeem us, and they're beggarly because they've got no wealth to bless us. Verse 8, if you look down, formerly, Paul says, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You think things are gods. You have them, and you might not even know that you have them. Things that you worship, things that you live for, things that you prize and value above Christ. Perhaps you are involved in some sort of offshoot, quasi-cult, and you don't even know that you're a part of it. I hope the Lord awakens you to that. Did you go, you know what? I don't need that and Jesus Christ. He is sufficient to satisfy me and all of my needs. Jews would twist the law of God, something that Paul called good, into this rules of obedience religion that was actually making them live under a curse. And cults do that as well. John Wesley, uh, you'll know him as the great Methodist evangelist who came to our country. He, in his postgraduate work in Oxford, created a club along with others like his brother, Um, Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and others, and they were called the Holy Club. They were the Holy Club. They had orthodox beliefs. They practiced religion. They were upright in conduct and good work, and they hung out as friends and would visit inmates in prisons and workhouses around Oxford. They took pity on slum children. They provided food, clothing, education. They observed a Sabbath day on Saturday, and then they went to church on Sunday. They took Holy Communion. They gave alms. They searched the scriptures, and they fasted, and they prayed. But guess what? They were still not saved. They were bound in the fetters of their own religion and trusting themselves and their own righteousness instead of putting trust in Christ. They spent several, uh, John Wesley spent several years as a missionary to the American Indians. It was the British colonies during that time. He specifically ministered in Georgia preaching. He returned to England and then he confessed in his journal that I went to America to convert others but was never myself converted to God. A few years later, John Wesley, when he returned to his homeland, did put trust in Christ for salvation. He was given the inward assurance that he was saved, that his sins were gone. He very unwillingly, he said he very unwillingly went to a society, a Christian meeting at Aldergate Street. And one evening he discovered and claimed, listen, and this is Christian experience. He said, I had felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given to me that God had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He said, I had then come to faith. I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. So before he had a faith of a works-based servant, but then once he became a Christian, he had the faith of being a son. It's a religion of sons, not slaves. Now, we are servants of Christ, but we serve as a slave who is an adopted son. So, you come from all walks of life, but we all need the same Savior. So, what is the experience as a son? What is the experience as a son? We were first a slave And now, let's look at what it looks like to be a son. Look at verse 4. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Let's stop there. This section is going to break down into several theological categories. Don't be turned off by the word theological. I'm not going to go all academic on you this morning, maybe later. But what I'm going to do is preach these categories. These are theologically rich, meaningful categories that are just presented here in the next few verses. And the first category is being redeemed. Being redeemed. Look at verse 5. Speaking of Jesus, he came to redeem those who were under the law. Let's stop there. Redeemed. First of all, in verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, the timing was perfect. Speaking of the day that the date that had been set by the Father, in biblical history, there was a point in time 2,000 years ago where the timing was just right for Jesus to come. The time, timing word is the word chronos. It speaks of the Lord's timetable, the fullness of time. Why was it the fullness of time? We don't exactly know. This is God's perfect timing, not our own. But a few historical things were going on. I mean, perhaps technology had advanced to a point where God could not hold back any longer. And it was just time. It was a zenith moment for Christ to arrive on the scene. Rome had conquered and subdued, subdued the known inhabited earth. Everyone was living under the Pax Romana or the peace given by Rome. The Roman roads were um, set up in a way that there was an ease of travel where missionaries could move the gospel around and churches could be formed around the known inhabited world. Roman legions had stationed guard posts along these roads to make them safe. It was time where the Greek language, Koine Greek and culture had given to a certain cohesion in society. Mythical gods had gone all abust. They were seen as vacuous and empty in Greece and Rome at that time. They were losing hold on the hearts of the people and the common man. Hearts and minds suddenly were opened. People were available for the gospel. As I was writing these words and reading these quotes and, and thinking these things through, I was thinking, right now it seems like such a zenith moment for Christ to come again, does it not? I mean, with the internet, with technology, the world is shrinking, we know what's going on. Maybe the gospel is going to strike at a new level, even with Christ's return. So minds were open, people were hungry, they were looking for something real and satisfying, the mystery religions had failed. They'd been invading the empire and they had left people bankrupt. They're looking for something real. They're looking for something authentic. They're looking for someone that will give them meaning. Does that sound familiar in our culture today? For the Jew, the law of Moses had not saved them. It had prepared them to meet Christ. It was a tutor that had driven the the culture of Israel to a point of bankruptcy where they're saying, I feel imprisoned, I need a savior, the freedom that only Christ could provide. So here's the turning point in verse four. The fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, his son, Jesus Christ, the only one who can bring resolution to the world that we live in. He's the only one who as the second 
person of the Godhead. He's the only one that can resolve your sin issue in your life. Jesus is the only one who can give you true and lasting and meaningful and eternal hope. And if you've come to faith in Christ, even in these last few years, you know that to be true. You know that to be true. The idea of sonship here is a powerful theme. The son of God was promised. And it can be traced through the Bible. Adam was created in the image of God. And then 130 years later, a son was given to him named Seth. And Seth was the one who came after Cain killed his brother Abel. Seth was a picture of the redeemer, redeeming sonship. Israel was called God's son that was to be redeemed. David was the promised son, was was given a promised son who would reign. 2 Samuel 7 says of Solomon, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the idea of sonship where David failed in his sins, was disqualified to build the temple. Solomon was come, was given and promised to redeem that failure. And then in Psalm 2-7, David prophetically speaking for God himself speaks of the Messiah saying, you are my son. This is the father speaking of Christ. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 4 encapsulates who Christ is. Verse 4 is all about what's called the hypostatic union. That Jesus Christ is fully God, the Son of God from eternity past, and fully man at the same time. Nowhere else in Scripture ties these these two realities together like verse 4. God the Father sent forth his son for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son god sent his son remember in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god you have god the father in eternity past and with god the father is god the son who is the word colossians 1 says this word spoke everything into existence all things were created by this word from him and to him, to give him glory. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, as I've said. He's the son of God from eternity past. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God, the essence of God. And he's also man. Verse 4, born of woman. This implies the virgin birth, but what is really highlighted here by Paul in Galatians is that Christ is fully human, fully human, full humanity. He was here on earth physically, and now he's at the right hand of the Father physically, still God, still fully human. His humanity is is so authenticating to Christ as our Messiah because he proved himself and claimed himself to be fully God. So he is the sufficient Savior who could die on the cross in his humanity, and yet because he is eternally God, he could satisfy the penalty that is against us in himself, dying in our place, absorbing an eternal punishment because he's eternally God. 
That's the significance of the cross in Christ, where he's fully God and fully man. And Christ on earth did not live a fictional life. It was a real life of moral accountability under the law. Do you see that in verse 4? He was born of woman, born under the law. He was under the law that all of Israel could not keep. He was under the law that Paul said put the Galatians under a curse. Something where they had given themselves a death sentence to was actually achieved and fulfilled by Christ. Christ fulfilled every commandment. He did it perfectly. A sinless savior, fully obedient, and fully obedient on our behalf, undergoing massive satanic temptations, undergoing massive external temptations, withstanding all of that weight, all of that pressure on our behalf, so that we could be given his righteousness, and he could take our unrighteousness upon himself. John Stott said this of verse 4, he said, he was God's son, born under a human mother, So that he was human as well as divine, the one and only God-man. He was born of a Jewish mother into a Jewish nation subject to the Jewish law. And he throughout his life submitted to the law's requirements and succeeded where all others failed. Perfectly fulfilling the righteousness of the law. So that the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed man. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. He acted on your behalf and my behalf to redeem you. We're still on our first theological category here, but redemption is so important. It means to be bought with a price. We were bought with the price of Jesus' precious blood. It's, we were enslaved under the master's slaveship of sin where we are put on the slave bargaining block and we are, we are bought out from under one master to serve a new master. And being bought, you have a decision as a, as a master, not the slave, but once a slave is bought by his master and there were... Uh, Some 60 million slaves in the empire at this time. So everybody would have been dialed into this moment. A new master has a very clear choice to make. He says, I'm either going to keep you as my new slave or I'm going to set you free. And in this case, the point that Paul is making is that we have been freed. Not only have we been freed, it's as if the master said, I'm going to free you, but I'm also going to take you to myself, not as a slave now, but as a son, as my child. I'm going to raise you. I'm going to love you. And I'm going to set a day where you own everything that I own. You're going to have it all. That's the gospel. That's what it means for redemption being bought back to apply to adoption. And that's our second theological category, adoption. Sonship is adoption. To be a son of God means that God adopted you, that he loved you and adopted you. He sent his son so that he could take you to be 
his son. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. J.I. Packer put it this way. He said the highest privilege that the gospel offers is adoption. It's affection. It's love. It's generosity. Alistair McGrath put it this way. Great theologian. He said adoption means that you were wanted. He wanted you. When a parent adopts a child, they want that child. They are taking that child to themselves. I remember reading of a friend of mine in seminary. He wrote this in a book that he wrote on being parented and on parenting. And he spoke of a court date where he was sitting out in the lobby and his uh, new father, who was going to adopt him before the court proceeding, went and sidled up next to the son on that bench, he said, can I adopt you? Can I be your dad? And that's the picture of the gospel here. It's belonging. It's, these are deeply emotive themes. I think that the Christian movement of adopting people into the home is a good one. It's biblical to adopt people, to bring them into a household of faith. This is loving orphans. And widows, it's, it's true religion. It's the privilege of invitation. It's the privilege of welcome. It's the outsider who's welcomed into the fold of faith. Well, the third category here is regeneration. Redemption or being redeemed means that you are adopted. And when you are adopted, you are given a new heart. And look at this. This is something that doesn't happen in terms of physical adoption. When we adopt someone personally into our home, we can't give them our spirit. We can give them our heart in love, but God actually, when he adopts you, he gives you a new heart. He gives you, listen, the mind of Christ. He gives you the ability to engage him spiritually, to know him personally as an adopted child. This is a very Trinitarian passage, meaning God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all mentioned here in one verse and in this section. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So God the Father, he sent his son to save you, to redeem you. And now the scene and the picture is God the Father sending the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the one whom magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are mentioned here. The Spirit of the Son of God, the Holy Spirit, is in our hearts. He's sent to us. It's the miracle of regeneration. It's where we are made alive to God. It's where Christ comes alive to us. Why do you love the unseen Christ? Why do you seek the unseen Christ? Why do you cry out to the unseen Christ for help, for comfort? Why do we sing songs where suddenly we feel the affections rise in our hearts when we sing of Emmanuel, God is with us? Why does that matter? Why do we call ourselves Christians and identify ourselves with Christ? Why do we believe that we would give our lives for Christ? Why do we sacrifice for Christ? Why do we give money towards Christ? Why do we do that? It's because the Holy Spirit has awakened us 
to see Christ in our hearts, to believe that the Jesus Christ described in Scripture is real. This is the convictional work of the Holy Spirit. It's where we read in Colossians where it says to think heavenly thoughts. How? Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Listen, this is why we have preaching. We have preaching so that the word of God can be through a voice, whoever's voice it may be, pressed upon your heart, pressed upon your life. I bring the word of God into your life this morning so that you'll feel uncomfortably aware of the fact that you are in the presence of God, that God's accountability is over you, you, not Jeff's accountability over you. The word of God is brought to bear on your life because the Holy Spirit is showing you, I need to change or I need to grow. I need to be transformed. This is what the Spirit of God does in our lives because he lives in us. Well, not only is there redemption, we're bought back. We're bought with a price. We're adopted. We're brought near into Christ's life, into Christ's um, presence, into Christ's promise. Lastly, we are assured that we are Christ's child. There's assurance. There's assurance that comes. We're redeemed, adopted. We're regenerated. We're enlivened, given the Spirit of God and The Spirit of God assures us that we are His. And we see this in these words. He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God in you will bear witness with your spirit, and you will find yourself, as a believer, crying out to Jesus Christ. Remember, a good friend of mine who's a pastor now We were talking, and he was a very quiet guy. We're still friends, have like a 30-year relationship. He's one of the quietest people I know, and we talked to each other. And I remember I was trying to diagnose if he had become a Christian in his first year of college. And I had gone away to Bible college, and he stayed home, and I was checking in on him. And where are you at? Where are you at? And he said, look, Jeff, stop. He said, I drive along in my car, and I put Christian radio on, and I find myself singing out to the Lord and crying out to the Lord in my own personal way. Whether you're quiet, whether you're loud, whether you're shy, whether you're boisterous, the Christian has a Christian experience where he or she cries out to Christ. The word krago is the Greek word for cry. It means to scream out. Crying out in this way doesn't necessarily mean you scream or you shout, but krago is onomatopoeic, meaning that it's, the, it's a word that sounds like what it's doing. Krago, it's crying out, and it's the deep feelings of intensity that we feel inside for the Lord. The screaming of the Gerasen demoniac, uh, that word's used of him crying out. The yelping epileptic boy of Mark 9 was crying out. Blind Bartimaeus cried out. Jesus on the cross yielded up his spirit, and he cried out. The Christian cries out out of love and out of uh, his own personal witness that he's a believer. I remember being a 10-year-old and uh, having my father slam down. It was after a road trip, and I was getting out of the hatchback of the Citation. You'll remember that um, death-defying vehicle of the 80s. And I was getting out, and I left my hand um, you know, there for a second. My dad was in a hurry, so he slammed the trunk down onto my finger, suspending me there. At that moment, I did not cry out. I just sat there stunned watching my finger, and he was finding the keys and whatever and 
got the trunk open, probably seconds later, felt like a minute. But I remember flinging myself to the ground and crying out to the Lord. We have moments in our lives where we cry out to the Lord, where what's inside comes out. But this text is talking maybe more personally in terms of the assurance of salvation. Romans 8 is the parallel text here in verse 15 and 16. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I read an article. It was written by BBC News called Babies Cry in Their Mother's Tongue. And it talks about how a baby's cry matches their mother's language. A newborn child, two or three days old, will cry in a distinctive way, mimicking the sound of the mother's cry. And this article said that researchers studied 60 healthy newborn children from both French and German families, and they found something fascinating, and that is that each newborn baby has its own cry melody. This is not new for mothers, right, who hear their baby crying, you know, down the hallway from here, right? Almost like miles away, they can hear their baby's distinctive cry. But it's a specific pattern of sounds that's unique to the child. More than that, they found that babies will match their cry to the sound and intonations of their mother's voice. Let's just say that one of our children cried like a goat. It was this sort of, eh, I don't know if that matches this or not. The point is this. Listen, God loves you more than a mother loves a newborn baby. He loves you. He made you, and he knows your heart, and he knows your heart cry. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. This is sonship. We know God's voice and God knows our voice. It's all summarized in verse 7 of chapter 4. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. There's the transition. Then an heir through God. Listen, sonship is now. Sonship is personal. Sonship means that you're a child of God today. Sonship also anticipates a future. It anticipates an inheritance. You know God And you are fully known by God, but you will know God one day even more, even better. Let me ask you a question. And this is the question in light of your eternity. And lately, I've received all kinds of news of people with health issues, people who are dying or who have died, people whose death and mortality is right in their face. The... The reason we meet as church is in light of eternity. We meet to ask ourselves this question. Do you have a Christian experience? And I don't mean some whooping up external thing that's manipulated within a worship service. I mean the private prayer closet experience where you know God and you know that God knows you. The most horrifying words in scripture are out of the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, where at judgment day, there will be those who say, look, I cast out demons, prophesied in your name, did all kinds of stuff. I was part of a holy club, right? Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. What's the litmus test? Whether Jesus knows you or not. 
whether you know him or not. That was Paul's one thing, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching for the upward call the prize, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent.